Reese's peanut butter cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, <laughs> that's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the NASCAR on NBC podcast. I'm your host, Nate Ryan, joined by NASCAR on NBC analyst Steve Letarte. We're talking on the Monday morning after a thrilling but yet rain-shortened race at Atlanta Motor Speedway, won by William Byron. Stevie, some great racing, some interesting calls both by NASCAR and the teams. But first, let's start with the fact that this was a rain-shortened event. They completed 185 of a scheduled 260 laps, so just short of 300 miles, what was supposed to be a 400-mile race. You've been there. You've got all that crew chief experience. What are these races like for a crew chief? You know, we had Rudy Fugel, the crew chief, William Byron, say that he just guessed badly on when the rain was going to arrive. Yes, uh, Steve Harmer with the AJC for Rudy. Um, how do you rate yourself as a meteorologist, and could you kind of recount how, what the, I guess, the strategy and the decisions were toward the end as you see the blob coming your way. I'm terrible. I was I was probably 20 laps off. So whatever that was in time, I'm I'm terrible. Uh, my wife's a science teacher, did some meteorology stuff. I was hoping I'd you know some of that would rub off, but it, it hasn't. So uh, still have a ways to go. As a crew chief, are these races are they a challenge? Do you sort of hate the uncertainty? Do you just go with it and try to get through it? Like what's it like to have? all of this sort of riding on your pit calls and not knowing when the race is going to end. Well, so I loved it. Um, so, you know me, I'm a math guy. So, so if you love math, the more variables, the better, right? I only really need one constant, right? I, I, the more variables, the harder the equation is to figure out. And that's what this race is. And there's already a ton of variables in NASCAR racing, but then when the finish line is also a variable, that becomes really, really tough, right? Because Try planning a road trip with your family. You don't even know where you're going. Well, it's pretty hard to decide where you're going to stop for lunch and gas if you don't know where, you know, are we driving two hours? Are we driving six hours? Like, how comfortable are you? And that's kind of what the crew chiefs are doing. But let's not make it sound like I appreciate Rudy saying he guessed wrong. He perhaps did. But I can tell you that if it's still a guess, which it is, but if it's an uneducated guess, shame on you. You know, it, it, and, and I don't think it is for Rudy. That's not what I'm saying. But for any of these teams... We saw weather a week ago at Chicago as far as, hey, when do we put drives on? Is more rain coming? What are we doing right here? Now we've seen a rain-shortened race. Like NASCAR is moving into the world of global motorsports where it's not as simple as, oh, we have a few drops, we're done. Right? We now run rain tires at road courses. We now run rain tires at, at short tracks. We now have these lightning holds, which have nothing to do with rain, which is a whole different radar system. So if you are one of these multi-million dollar race teams and you aren't specializing in someone is your meteorologist, whether hmm. that's marine radar, you bring on site instead of using someone provided, right? Like if you go out on a boat in the middle of the ocean, you're not using AccuWeather. I mean, you're using your own radar. So I think the fans at home should know that we talk about war rooms and we think it's travel and fuel and tires and temperature and speed. Well, if one of those people in your war room isn't weather, shame on you. Like, like I have, I don't even know how many I forgot. 15 trophies, 10 trophies as a crew chief. And, you know, Jeff Gordon and I want a Pocono in the weather, right? Like, like there's no, you know, golf, they say there's no pictures on the scorecard. Well, in racing, there's, there's no pictures on the trophy to tell you how you did it. You want it. You have the trophy. Fill the case. So I think that's interesting. You know, how, what is it like? It's anxiety filled. I mean, it's so, so now I do think Atlanta makes it different because it's worse at a place like this week at New Hampshire. Because it's going to be clear in New Hampshire what three or four cars should win this race. So if you mess that up, it's glaring obvious that you've messed something up. Where at Atlanta, I don't know, what was there, 25 cars that could have won that race? So it's it's a little, it's a different, you know, it's it's a little bit more of a freewheel. Like, hey, man, I just need to kind of guess right to be towards the front. Uh, so Rudy Fugel, 
he he said he guessed wrong, but you know, when I look at the strategy, he didn't guess as wrong as others. You know, there was three big groups. There was one car, Michael McDowell on the lap 95 yellow. There was a whole nother group at the lap 125 pit stop and a whole nother group at the lap 160 pit stop. Uh, he was in that lap 125 group. So I would actually argue he guessed right. He was with the masses. He was with the majority. I thought his weather prediction was pretty good. He could just tell his wife that he is paying attention <laughs> to Sunday dinner conversations, that he did know the rain was coming at about that same time. That's right. And to your point, like you did that as well as a crew chief. You had the Pocono win. I believe, wasn't there a Darlington win where the rain came when Gordon's engine was blowing up and you guys were in the lead? Well, that was the Sunday after the rain. That rain, there ah, was no okay. predicting. It was sit around and let's race on Mother's Day. But you are right. I get, I get back to my point, like it's life. Yeah. Like, I, I hate to be like that, but it will affect how many races this year. Not as many as pit stops, which affect every race, but a lot. You know, there'll be more rain races than there will be road course races. You know, if someone's bad at the road courses, we'd be like, you need to put some more effort into your road course program. Well, maybe someone needs to put some more effort into their rain prediction software. Now, look, it's an unexact science. If it was an exact science, there'd be a lot of people out of work, right? But it's it's not that easy. But that doesn't mean you still shouldn't put effort into it. No, no absolutely not. And I think I saw a stat from frontstretch.com that this was... The first time in a season we've had back-to-back -back races uh, shortened by rain. Chicago last week, Atlanta this week. For the it's the first time since 2003. But even though it's the first time in 20 years that you have that scenario of back-to-back -back shortened races, it doesn't mean that races aren't impacted by rain if they're not shortened. And and so what you're saying there is interesting about the war rooms. We know that teams are limited in the terms of the number of people that they can bring to the track each week on those crew rosters, but somebody back in charlotte there is in some there is somebody in that room for hendrick stuart haas penske gibbs who that's their job is just to monitor whatever radar that they have well and and you know we talk crew rosters but that's active crew in the garage area and on the pit box i haven't seen this but i'm waiting for the team to bring their war room on location not in the nascar controlled area Hmm. Oh, you know, you, you, you go to the track uh, as much or more than I do to all of these. So let's talk racing in general. You go to NASCAR, you have the cup garage. But then you also have the motorhome lot, which is more of a residential area it's where their families stay. That's different. But then there's always this ancillary lot. It usually has the Chevrolet trailer, usually has a Toyota trailer, the Ford trailer, has the manufacturing help. Sometimes you'll see X-Track in there, which is one of the suppliers. Sometimes you'll see the SRI trailer in there. So it's this, I call it ancillary. They are not race teams. They're not NASCAR. But they are very important people that are required for the event to happen. Well, when I go to IndyCar or IMSA in the paddock that is in the garage area, there are these huge hospitality tents, whether it's for marketing or activation or even a race team. You know, when is Hendrick Motorsports going to have a area in the midway or on the back stretch and front half is I'm going to entertain my guests? We see that. When is the back half of that area going to be the executive offices and the war room? Maybe it's easier to connect back to the shop. That's why they do it. And I think that's real. And it may not even replace that. But is a weatherman better to be on location? You know, because the radar is one thing. But look, I love technology. But like I tell my kids, no, 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 no. Stop looking at your screen. Just look, raise your head. Look out the window. Like there's a window right there. This big glass thing. It tells you more than, you know. So to your point, you know, do you bring a, a, you know, is there a weather guy there? Could somebody provide a weather service? Now, I wouldn't subscribe to that because I don't want the same service you're getting if I'm racing against you. And, and this isn't just a thing for the teams. Remember NASCAR. Let's go back to Daytona. They go on down into turn one in the downpour and they wreck, I don't know how many cars. And NASCAR kind of rightfully stepped up and said, we're going to have to do something different because that didn't work. They tried some rain sensors. A friend of mine owns a very large greenhouse, perhaps one of the biggest in the world. Uh, at least on the East Coast. And he has sensors acres and acres away because when you have a million mums and the doors open and the thunder shower starts, you got to get the, the roofs closed so you don't ruin your crop. So it has these fancy sensors all over the greenhouse. NASCAR tried something like that, but it wasn't quite sensitive enough. You know, I talked to Mike Helton, how'd you do it years ago? And Mike said, you know, I just sent an official in a golf cart or a truck out. If the storm was coming to turn three, I would just send a guy a mile outside turn three at Daytona, you know, and we laugh at those rudimentary systems, but guess what? They're really good. Cause now you have a guy like a mile out there going, Hey, yep. Yeah, oh, I got a little rain on the windshield. So NASCAR's had to adapt as well. And I think that's what we saw at the end of the race that I know the fans don't love. And I didn't love that we rode around that far under yellow, but I loved that I had confidence NASCAR knew 
it was two in question to go green. That is a very tough balance. Steve, I like the I like NASCAR not opening pit road right now. If you know you're hearing rain on the racetrack in certain areas, you know, try to keep it fair for everybody. Try not to open pit road until they feel feel that they can get. You know, the track they, they know the track's not going to get wet and they can go back green. Yeah, I, I absolutely have to agree as much as I don't want to. <laughs> I want to put it in the positions of the crew chiefs, but I do think with eminent weather and the radar looking the way it is, if it was a pop-up shower, I would disagree with Jeff and say, no, 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 you got to decide if we're going to keep running, not run. That's part of being a crew chief, but that is not a pop-up shower. That's a major storm that's been moving here. So, Jeff, I think you and I are on the same page here, but I'm going to leave myself some wiggle room in future races to disagree on the same call. Well, there comes a time, too, where, you know, if it doesn't start raining in the next few minutes, you got to open pit road. we got to go back racing. They're just trying to be fair to the teams right here. I would have preferred if we couldn't – well, I don't know what I prefer, to be honest. And I had this mental – you're seeing the same mental disaster right now. Tug of war. Well, so war. here's the problem. If the racetrack – and or weather is not in an area that is allowing green flag racing. The question then becomes, should we or should we not ride around under yellow? So everybody wants us to be a line in the sand between rain, red flag, or green flag. And that's how it was. But now with this weather education, now there's a third choice. Now there's a, hey, guess what? We can't be racing. It's raining too hard. So we're now under caution. But hey, it's not raining hard enough to stop the cars. So we're just going to ride around under yellow. And we're going to do it with pit road closed. I don't know where I am on this. Jeff Burton was a big fan of it. He said it on the broadcast. In this instance, I felt like a fan of it because the looming weather was race ending. It was huge. I also feel like this is a little bit new of a nuance. And I don't feel like it's discussed. What I would like from NASCAR is this week communicate to the teams how this is going to be handled. You and I talk about this all the time. I don't care, and I know the fans are going to be mad at this. I don't care if they like it or don't like it. All I care about is that NASCAR is consistent. If today we rode around with pit road closed, then at New Hampshire, are we going to ride with pit, round around with pit road closed? It's the consistency that I struggle with. And that's why I questioned Jeff's enjoying this, because I think there's other races where they would have opened pit road. And that's really gets to me the crux. I, I think it does depend on the rain. If it was a pop-up thunder shower, and I said this on the broadcast, I disagree. Open pit road. Because I think we're racing on the other side of the rain. So, no, 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 <laughs> no. You want to be a crew chief? Congratulations. You're a crew chief. Decide what you want to do. Just to frame this, you mentioned Daytona, the regular season finale last year. And that was certainly the specter that was looming over Atlanta last night. This race was most similar to that one with so much at stake. More so in that case because that set the 16 playoff, uh, 16 driver playoff grid. But... Of course, Daytona last year, you had this situation where NASCAR tried to wait. You have this two and a half mile track, raining on one end, not raining on the end where they could really see, and they go green and you have half the field wipe out. So I think that caused a lot of PTSD probably for teams, drivers, and NASCAR at Atlanta last night, but it certainly seemed like they were mindful of that in this decision that we're not going to open the pits, but we are just going to ride here under yellow. You know, you had that multi car wreck. And then you had about 18 lap caution that, that was extended, obviously, while they were waiting to see if the rain was going to lift or not. And, you know, Burton talked about this on the broadcast TV that NASCAR has tried to up its game a little bit and placing people outside the racetrack to try to determine, to your point, about like, we're not just going to rely on technology. We're going to have like real world incremental sort of evidence here as to what's happening. So did you like all of that? Was it better handled, I guess, last year than Daytona? And is the lessons just, hey, even more communication will help this. So don't forget that we also had an Xfinity Series race that ended two laps short of halfway a week ago. Right. So, you yeah. know, everybody wants, you know, it's easy to say safety, 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 until you stay an extra night two miles from the halfway mark. And then you're like, oh, man, we couldn't have found two miles. Like, think about the weight on the decision makers up in the tower who understand what all this is going to be. I think they actually handled Atlanta perfectly. I think everybody knew it was coming. And we got weather. The race was under yellow. The only thing I think I would prefer, and, and maybe I'm being too picky, is stopping the cars seems a little tough for the fans. But, like, remember, we used to have a green-yellow status. You know, maybe we go back to a green-yellow status. And what I mean by that is, remember when we were drying tracks? Hey, we're going to go green-yellow, which means we're starting to count laps. 
but we are still under yellow. We're going to up the pace car speed from a very crawling 45 miles an hour. That is awful. Like it's just, it's so tedious. We're going to up it to 90 and we're going to go green. Like I wish that status was officially listed in the rule book that we as the tower, they have the right to go to single fire restarts. They have the right to do a lot of things. Maybe we need to give them another status. Maybe we need to say, hey, and, and give it a reason. Like, here's why I say this. I, in my opinion, it was raining light enough that air titans or jets were not the answer to keep the surface correct. The cars were. So maybe, and you know, this is a, bit, a mile and a half track, but think about it if it's at New Hampshire. You put 36 cars out there, you have the place almost covered, right? So as a crew chief, though, that has to go into my fuel calculations. You know, Michael McDowell's out there riding around, clutching the thing, trying to make it to the finish. So either just stop the cars and see what the weather does. We were past halfway. Or have this status in the rule book. Maybe we need a green yellow. Hey guys, we're under yellow. We are not sure if the weather's here. We're uncomfortable, go back to a full green situation. We're gonna go to an increased pace car speed, a green yellow, in attempts to keep the track dry in case the weather does move. You know, and last night, look, it was impending weather. In my mind, if we were uncomfortable going green, we might as well just stop the cars because it was enormous, it was on the screen and it was getting closer. There was nothing I saw on the radio, radar that would have gave me credit after I saw sprink, sprinkles. There's nothing that would have given me enough confidence to say, yep, let's let 36 of them go down into turn one at 170 miles an hour. Nothing I saw would have allowed that. So bring them down pet road right away. I wonder if the fans, and this, this will be a good question. I hope that comes up on talk radio. Hopefully Bagley and, and our buddy Pete Stoney go through this because I do feel like we lost this moment of a finish, but I didn't. And I think I didn't because I was looking at the radar. So when the yellow came out in my mind, I already knew it was over. I was just waiting for the call and the cars to stop. So I didn't lack the finish. I didn't say that on TV because who, I'm not in charge of calling the race. Like, it's, it, it, you know, but in my mind, when, when I saw the yellow come out, I'm like, oh, this baby's over. So I don't know. I can see how the fans can be. It's a tough situation. But I will say this, and I'll be the first to tell you my opinion when I think NASCAR trips up. I don't think they tripped up on this one. Yeah. I think this one was actually happened. This one was called and managed pretty exquisitely from the from the NASCAR tower. And just to put a period on it, to explain it for somebody who might be relatively new in terms of a fan watching NASCAR, by keeping the pits closed, that keeps it fair for everybody because... Well, no, no. Well, you, well, you, you, I wouldn't use the word fair. By keeping the pits closed, it freezes the running order. Okay. Because unless you have an issue like Michael McDowell running out of gas, nobody's going to come to pit. But it also takes away from the advantage or strategic call if the race does continue. Now you see the dilemma when Jeff asked, as the driver, he liked it closed. Yeah. As a crew chief, I'm like, well, but should it be closed? And, and here's why I'll say, why should it be closed, Nate? Because say it wasn't for rain. Say it was for wall damage. And we had a 12 lap yellow pit roads open for all 12 laps. So I could come down and I can open the hood and I can raise the car. I can lower the car. I can change stuff. I, you know, so I like it in this instance. I just think if I'm NASCAR in my communications this week, I would say something like this. Hey guys, great job in Atlanta. Everything was good in review as we always do. Here's what I will tell you. When we throw a caution for rain and we never get the sense that we are going to go back green and we haven't seen anything in the radar and it looks like imminent weather threat of a long-standing storm. We're going to keep pit road closed for the safety of everybody. And, you know, we can either stop the race, open pit road and continue the race or go to a green yellow status. You know, here are our three options. I would then say the opposite being if we get what we consider a shower or something that is clear to us as a delay. Now, it may not be a delay. David Rudiman won a Coca-Cola 600. That was a delay. I was damn. And here's why I get a little sensitive about it. Guess who was running in front of David Rudiman when he decided to stay out? Yes, this guy with the right side tore off the 24 car, right? <laughs> but my mind was like, oh, this is a delay. So let's go down pit road and fix the car. Well, he stayed out and damn. Ronnie Childers and David. I'm like, oh, well, that, that, that stunk. Like, we yeah. won well, the it reminds me too of like Justin Haley at Daytona in 2019. Like same pit thing. road was open. That's how he won the race. Yeah. So that's why there just needs to be procedure. I guess that's my point. And I'm okay if, now it's never black and white, but if NASCAR says, if we believe this is an imminent threat of race ending weather, we're not going to open pit road. Okay, cool. And if we believe it's not, if we believe this is a blip in the day, it's 30 minutes in at New Hampshire, or even if it's past halfway at New Hampshire, but we know we have nine hours of daylight, you know, because here's the counter, Nate. The counter is if we're not halfway, they open pit road. Zero doubt in my mind. If we're lap 105, pit road opens. Because you know you're going back. 
or you have to theoretically, go back. You, you should be going. You have back. to go back. So you know, this is one of those times that I agree with how they did it, but I also want to see some communication and adjustment out of it. You know, that doesn't always have to be blame or finger pointing. I thought they handled it great. I would just like to understand. Listen, I'm as bad as a competitor. You've been in the meetings, so you know. I'm going to go see my friends at NASCAR this week and be like, okay, walk me through this. I got to bring this to the fans. Why didn't you open pit road? What's your thought process? Like, I am going to challenge their decisions, not because they were wrong, but because I want to be able to explain their decision-making to the fan base who have decided to spend their Sunday afternoon or evening with us on USA. And if they've sat on their couch with their friends and they're willing to commit their three hours to me and Dale Jr. and Jeff Burton, Rick Allen talking on TV, then I dang well better have some answers for those people. And for that reason, I'm going to go talk to my friends at NASCAR this week uh, make, and I'm going to make a suggestion that they're not going to probably ask for, and I'm going to suggest all these things. And I think Elton Sawyer and his team up there are doing a heck of a job. You and I have scrutinized the tower over the last few years. Um, they're nowhere near perfect, but I believe it has improved. In the last 18 months, I believe their race managements have improved. And for that reason, I, I'm happy with what happened at Atlanta. And we appreciate that due diligence you'll be doing. We look forward to hearing what you have to say about what NASCAR says uh, during our New Hampshire coverage this coming weekend. But just to go back to Atlanta, Stevie, and talk a little bit about the winner. Great analysis, obviously, about what happened at the end of that race. But I don't want to discount what William Byron did. Uh, gets his series-leading fourth victory and had to overcome a ton of adversity. Starts where he gets penalized after the first stage for a safety violation on a pits, falls into the middle of the pack. And then gets together with Corey LaJoy, spins, brings out a caution, spins across the track, and tears up a significant portion, apparently, of the underbody. William Byron felt like he could feel it scraping the underbody, like completely off of the number 24 Chevrolet. Tore up some stuff, so then I took it easy around the apron. And, um, you know, when I got to pit road, I realized they were taking a lot of stuff out of the right side of the car um, that had been torn up. So I thought, man, it's, it's probably pretty hurt, you know, if they're trying to, you know, peel off parts of the car to to clearance it and um it was you know i think the car was damaged for sure uh but we were able to change the balance enough to where it got manageable byron restarts 36 shortly after lap 80 what turned out to be about the halfway point of this rain shortened race goes all the way from 36 to first and seemed just dumbfounded in his post-race interview with marty snyder that his car was able to run this well then the penalty on pit road then the spin how did you guys come back and make this happen yeah just teamwork you know honestly i i don't completely understand this one <laughs> it's just uh, it's a really good feeling i've never had a, a rain uh, victory like this but just thanks to exalta chevrolet i mean it's cool man I, I we were through so much throughout the night uh spinning through the infield destroyed the bottom of the car dragging it around the yep. apron trying to stay on the lead lap and at that point, you just don't have the grip, so I was real edgy back in traffic, but uh, Rudy made a good call to pit there and then uh, and then stay out, and once we got towards the front, it was okay. We could honestly uh, make the right decisions, block okay, and uh, got the lead from AJ and just uh, was able to manage the run, so just a crazy night. Did it surprise you how well William Byron ran after sustaining that damage and that early spin and being able to win the race? Yeah, I, I was surprised because the underbodies are so sensitive. You know, there's these vertical fencing, you know, so it's not just this flat piece of carbon. There's this vertical fencing that kind of steers the air, and it's very important on how it steers it and the speed in which it steers it. So when you slide one sideways, that's less than ideal. When you have a flat tire, it's less than ideal. But to your point, so the best way to look at this for me is he got the free pass at lap 93. So it was a disaster. He had some damage. He was a lap down. Boom, just before lap 100, he gets the free pass. He then runs basically a 90-lap race from shotgun on the field. He pits at lap 125 for two tires, passes a few very important people, and then he misses some wrecks. No wreck more important than – I'm checking my notes because I believe it was the wreck with the 48 and the 11. You know, they were eight. They were in front of William when they spun. And the reason missing that wreck and how he missed that wreck is so important is because we talk about the nuance of racing. William not only missed a wreck, but he didn't slide a tire. What that allows is for Rudy Fugel to choose not to pit. You know, why does that matter? Well, because, you know, in the ensuing next kind of wave, he stays on the racetrack. His last pit stop is a lap 125 for two tires, and he goes from 16th to fourth. Now, that's what makes this win so good, right? Because... The team made a huge mistake, put him behind. He then gets wrecked. They made their own luck. He got wrecked because he should have never been back there. A lot of teams will break. Rudy and his leadership, they figured out how to get there. 
how do we get there from here? They never stopped racing. And really from lap 93 to the finish, it was amazing because it was an efficient pit stop, efficient fueling, a great two-tire call, a great call to stay out by Rudy Fugel. So that's everybody off the racetrack. And then the driver on the racetrack who is quickly becoming a superstar with now eight career wins in the Fame 24 that Jeff Gordon won 93 times in, he is head down and digging, just doing what Rudy tells him. And all of a sudden he looks up one time for the choose and he goes, holy crap, I'm at fourth. <laughs> and then he forgets that he has damage and he has, forgets that he has this and he forgets that he has all that stuff. And then we saw a superstar. Then we saw a superstar win a race. Like, I don't know how else to say it. I pick on William because I'm friends with him. Then he gets out, he's got a little bit of beard. He doesn't look like he's 20 anymore, right? He looks like he's aging a little bit. And he is, he is quickly, this is a year, in 10 years, we're going to look back and be like, damn, what year was it? What year was it that William Byron won multiple races and really showed up on the scene? Because he, in my opinion, moved out of Xfinity too quickly. The business moved him up. Rick Hendrick knew it. He said, I'm not worried about it. He's my guy. William, take your time. Take your time. Take you. Give him Chad Knauss early in his life. Say, we're going to give you our most veteran guy. Chad knows we're not what we're trying to do with you. He's not going to beat you up for the little things, but he's going to really coach you to be a great at prepare. Like when you look at William Byron's career, it is as put together around him as any career out there. It reminds me a little of Chase Elliott, right? Like people forget Chase started with Rick when he was in late models and Bill, and they had this hand in building, giving Chase the opportunity to be as great as he is. William Byron, his father has a lot to do with it. Bill. Mr. Hendrick has a lot to do with it. Dale Jr. had a lot to do with it with his opportunity at Junior Motorsports. And now we are seeing a driver who's young, experienced, a lot of starts, and his crew chief. What make, So a crew chief's job is to give your driver the opportunity to showcase his talent. I've said that a million times. We don't win races. We lose them. Drivers win races. And I'm sorry. I know that's unpopular. for like Drivers win them. That's what they do. And... He couldn't have won it without Rudy. Don't, make, don't, don't get me wrong. Like Rudy had a huge hand in this win. But Rudy would be the first one to tell you, be like, I just put my superstar up front. And, man, he, he got the last four for me. Everybody says, what's most important with the car and the driver and the team? And I just say, yep, yep, you, you need them all. Well, like you said, you put a talent of William Byron's caliber within sniffing distance of the checkered flag that close to the end. He's going to figure out a way to get their damage or not. And that's certainly what he did. But I want to go back to Stevie because you've got such a connection to the number 24 Chevrolet. And Jeff Gordon came in the media center with Rudy Fugel and William Byron after the win last night. And he told this story about how he went into Hendrick Motorsports the day after Christmas. Jeff Gordon did. And who does he run into? Rudy Fugel. Not expect to see anybody there because I don't remember why I was there. <laughs> but I... I can't, he, he was in his office working, you know, and I was like, man, I'm like, if you're working, you're going to have a good year. <laughs> and certainly it's turned out that way. William Byron's got four victories this year, the same number he had coming into the season. This is his hand-picked crew chief, Rudy Fugel, who he had such success with in the truck series. Like he said, Byron started with Chad Knauss, but now it's really seemed to hit another gear with Fugel. I know that you've bragged on this relationship before, that this isn't maybe another great example of, Rick Hendrick being that magician in terms of meshing people, Rudy Fugel, William Byron, they have that. So, you know, I was fortunate enough to win 10 races with Jeff and I was too young to understand that he needed a boss, right? Like as great as Jeff Gordon was, and I was too dumb to understand he needed a boss. Even after he told me right to my face, he needed a boss. You know, Jeff Gordon sat me down and said, hey, I need you to treat me like anybody else. I need you to hold me accountable. I need you to do all these things. That's how magical Jeff Gordon was. That's how much he understood the need. And at 25, he was my hero. I started working for him for 16. There was no chance I could hold him to the accountability level that I needed to. If I could go back and change one thing about my career, that would be it. I would then, the 2014 that I took over would have been my team, not Jeff's. And I don't mean that like they'll do anything for me. It's just, I just didn't grab the moment. I was think I was just 25 years old. Heck, I was, I didn't even know what I didn't know. When I took over with Dale, I kind of grabbed that moment and I led the team. And I think that's why we found the success we found. Rudy Fugel is as non-spotlight searching, blue collar leader as they go. He reminds me a lot of Alan, why they're very different in personality. Their resume and blueprint on paper is kind of the same, right? Like if I need info from you, Rudy, I have to search him out. And he's the first guy to be super polite, give me the exact information. But there's not a lot of chit chat. He is so cordial to understand my role as a broadcaster. 
And as soon as I'm done with the questions, he's so cordial to tell me, I don't have any more time for you. I got some stuff I have to go do. And I appreciate that. And I think what Jeff saw the day after Christmas is what William Byron sees every single day. I retired from crew chiefing because I didn't have the energy to turn the lights on and shut the lights off anymore. I watched Chad Knauss do it. I did it next to Chad Knauss for decades. And it's exhausting. You know, people could talk the talk. You know, why does Bill Belichick win? Well, he doesn't go home. Why? You know, we hear these stories about football coaches. You think crew chiefs are any different? The day after Christmas, he was at the shop. I mean, think about that, right? Like, like, it doesn't matter how big the teams get. It doesn't matter how much help you have. It comes down to you. You're the guy making the choices. Now, you are making the choices for some genius people around him, and he does a great job with all that. But in the end, you don't hear a lot of pleases and thank yous. It's not rude. Because when I hear the radio conversation between Rudy and William, they already know they got each other's back. They already know they're doing all they can do to try to win. Like, there's this confidence and belief in one another. And I believe it's what a younger William Byron needs, not because he needs a father figure or anything like that. He is a superstar, but he's still young. And I think Rudy allows him to be a superstar. And I think more importantly, he tells him what he needs to do and what he doesn't. You know, I think if we sat William down, I think Rudy does a really nice job of preparing William and helping William prepare. You know, it's two different things, but it's like, and I think William will do whatever it takes. And I think there's something to be said for that. They, they had so much success in truck and they won so quickly. What was it like Miami, like race, I don't know, six or seven together in their first year. And it was clear at that point that I felt like this is going to be a group that you're going to fight through a long time. Like with the new point system and the championship race, it's really hard to say they're going to win championships and all that because so much kind of has to go your way when it matters most. But I will say this. If you said Rudy Fugel and William Byron are going to win two to six races every year for the next six or seven years, I would say, yep. But if they just stay with it, they're, they're going to gobble up their share of wins. Leading the points now with seven races remaining in the regular season. So that's looking good as well for playoff points to get through these upcoming rounds. A couple more things on the race. So William Byron's Hendrick Motorsports teammate, Kyle Larson, nearly won stage one, appeared to be a really fast number five Chevrolet, but then had this interesting incident, Stevie, where you know he spun as well. I think he came to the pits, they changed one tire, they sent him back out, and then he's come back around to change another tire, and, the, and what's the right front just detonates and explodes and pretty much ruins the right front of that car. What happened there? Buns in three and four, he comes right into the pit box. Like, I mean, look, you're sitting on pit road, right? Next thing you know, 20 seconds later, he's in your box, chaos, flat tire. I hand it to the team, they jump over, they change the right side tire that's flat. So easy to be like, well, change the front as well. Well, you don't know which, like, it's just unfortunate. I can't wait to ask Cliff Daniels what he thinks, because it's easy to say he should have changed the front. But Cliff's a very organized guy, so I'm going to be like, so Cliff, you know, what's your procedure going to be when you come in after a spin? Are you just going to change all four anyway to save a lap or to lose a lap? Like, what do you, you know, because, man, I probably would have done the same thing. Change the one that's flat, go back out, come back in. If not flat, it's going to be fine. And then obviously it had flat spotted. The reason I say that is because if it was rubbing, it would have deflated. What happens to a tire that we saw is you have a tire that flat spots. So you take the tire, it has very thin thread, and you basically sand it across the pavement until you, you know, you go through probably the rubber, and now you're into the cords, now you're into the belts, and now the things holding the air in is not the stuff that's supposed to be touching the asphalt. So then as it rolls around, you know, there's no more tread or rubber protecting that stuff. You run over literally a pebble boom an explosion huge damage so it was super unfortunate i felt bad for kyle because he said it the best in his interview he goes i always reckon these things normally it's somebody else's fault tonight it was mine and and you're like yeah kyle you know see you in new hampshire like he's just you know speedway racing and kyle have not meshed quite quite where he wants them yet no no but i have a feeling it will uh at some point so that was under caution. There were a couple of instances late in the race, Stevie, where NASCAR elected not to throw a yellow for spins, one involving Noah Gregson, another involving Kevin Harvick, much to the dismay of Rodney Childers, who I saw on social media wasn't too happy about that non-caution call. Seemed like they were holding the yellow because of the threat of weather. These probably would be cautions in other instances, but they didn't create a situation on the racetrack where it was blocking racetrack or involved other cars. Did you agree with the way NASCAR kind of situationally handled those non-caution calls? So this one's on my list. I have to understand how we got to where we are. You know, I saw the yellow held at Bristol dirt and I didn't love it because I thought it created this sense of when you see a car spinning, 
I want every driver thinking I'm going to avoid him to not only help my day, but for safety, like, like, you know, I need to ease through this. You know, we saw that wreck with Kyle Larson at Talladega where he wrecked and Ryan Priest hit him. And I haven't spoke to Ryan Priest, so I can't say, like, was he in the gas thinking that was the best way to miss the wreck? Did he think, you know, I don't know what his mindset is, but I want drivers when another car spins, I want everybody to be thinking avoid the wreck. Because if that's the goal, then I think that's also the safest goal. So I have to side a little with Rodney here. The Noah one, he kind of spun on the pit road, if I remember correctly. Wasn't he right. in three and four? That one bothered me less. Uh, the Harvick one, I, I, had, I had a little trouble with that one. I mean, he spun on the front stretch. And I even said on the broadcast, and I said, you know, he's rolling around the apron. Here comes the field two and three wide. It'll be interesting to see if NASCAR fields, they could keep it green. Now, by the time the field got there, he got all the way to the flat of the backstretch. So I'll be the first to tell you that I don't think anything was in danger or safety. I don't think NASCAR endangered anyone in the situation. It goes back to what I was saying about weather, though. I question the consistency. Would that be a caution 50 laps into the race? I believe it would be. So if it is, then it is. I think the only time that a caution should be considered differently is in a green-white checkered finish. After we see the white flag, if there is a car that is safely in a good location to deliver a green flag finish to the fans, I think that's the only time, in theory, a yellow should or shouldn't not be thrown. That's the only time the protocol should change. I think the protocol for a yellow from lap one until the white flag should be the exact protocol. I think the protocol for a white flag, or excuse me, a caution flag after the white, it's okay to change. Because if the guy, say Kevin Harvick was the last car in the field and he spins off turn two at Talladega, hits nothing, just let him race back. Let's not rob the fans of a green flag finish. I think the drivers would agree with that. Now, listen, same situation. He spins and say there's another 12 cars coming through one and two at speed and they feel he's in safety. Safety should always trigger anything over entertainment, over the ticket value, over what we do. Safety, 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 safety. But right behind safety is consistency, 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 consistency. And I, I don't understand that one. Yeah. I mean, like, did we not throw a yellow because Kevin Harvick was good enough not to go back on the racetrack? Well, that seems silly. So now should Kevin Harvick spinning through the infield think, oh, I kind of need to spin back up towards the apron to get my yellow? And that, we don't want drivers thinking that. You know, people could say, oh, he would never. Oh, yes, they would. Like, absolutely. Like, I would be the spotter going, bah, bah, get a little right. We need a yellow. Like, that's why this is going to be a somewhat charged conversation because – for every action, there's a reaction. And in this case, for every non-action, there's a reaction. And there was a non-action by NASCAR, and I can defend why they did it. You said, we're trying to get to the race. Or da, 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 da. The hardest thing to do in life is to make tough decisions when, they, they, when they're not great for everybody else. But the simple fact is the guy was spinning across the front stretch. And I, currently sitting here today, Monday after the race, I don't agree with the decision of no yellow. It's on my list with weather to go see because they're human and we'll see what NASCAR says. And what I do appreciate about this group is they might say, you know, in hindsight, that probably needs to be a yellow and we're going to address it. And, you know, they're not afraid to adjust and discuss, but someone's going to have to just explain to me. And, and if the answer is, hey, this is how we're going to do it moving forward, I'm going to let them know I don't think that's a good idea because I'm going to tell my driver then to make sure he tries to get towards the lane to get a yellow like you don't want to give a driver a criteria to get a yellow that helps them no that would be certainly unfortunate ramification and there's always ramifications if i were nascar i think one way i might try to defend it might be to say well we still got more green flag racing because we held it their answer could be just that you weren't in harm's way and we wanted the racing to continue for therefore we held it and they have every right to do it it's their sport they are monitoring the sport even that answer, why I might not like it, and Ronnie Children's might not like it. If that's the answer, that's okay. But understand there will be ramifications. Nothing is made in a vacuum. No decision is made in a vacuum. And competitors will do anything for an advantage. So, And the racing last night was exceptional. It was furious. We had Daryl Waltrip tweet that it was the best race he's ever seen as a broadcaster, as a driver, as a competitor in NASCAR for decades. Uh, so this was the third race, Stevie, on this reprofiled Atlanta, which narrower surface, higher elevated banking. What do we make of this? Like, is Atlanta right now just in a sweet spot as this pavement ages? Will it be like this for a while? Is it going to change each race weekend? Where does it head from here? 
So I spoke with Steve Swift, who works for Marcus Smith's group. He's really in charge of track surfaces, track things. And I, I was like, man, we had a conversation about this asphalt. Remind me what you did. So for years, when you repaved a racetrack, you used whatever the best asphalt was out there that you put on every interstate because it's a huge financial cost and you want it to last forever. You know, people can say what they want about Marcus, but his long-term vision is quite impressive at times. The Roval, everybody thought, me included, was silly, ended up being amazing. Hey, we're going to bring back North Wilkesboro. What a great show. Uh, you know, all these things. Him and Steve Swift got together and he said, Wait, I don't want to use street asphalt. Re repaved stink. People love Atlanta because it's old asphalt. Find me something better. So Steve explained to me that this asphalt should last as long as the good stuff because of what it's made out of. I'm not going to pretend to be an asphalt guy, but that it shouldn't race like it's brand new as long. It should, quote, age. So when we say it's lost grip, he came right over to me before the race. He goes, make sure everybody knows it's lost grip because we wanted it to. Like, we want this place to lose grip. I think it's unfair to think anyone smart enough to know how quickly it loses grip. I don't think it's just that, though. Look, what we are in is we have a great, you know, people don't even want to give the car credit, but we have a great power combination, downforce combination, track radius, track grip, track size that you're on this threshold of, look, if you want to go run wide open and qualifying, I could easily make it drive wide open. They wouldn't even wiggle and we'd qualify dead last. So now if you want to be good, I can make it drive worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, which we should applaud. Like, I want to see the driver's efforts. William Byron said it the best. He goes, we now have our super speedway where we drive them. My point is they're not steering them. At Talladega, they're steering them. Inside, outside, inside, outside. At Daytona, a little bit of both. Now we have a great third one that's very different. Ross Chastain said, I wasn't wide open one lap. I did not run a single lap wide open in our Worldwide Express Chevy tonight uh, all weekend in qualifying or here in the race. So That was stunning to me when Ross said that in our interview last night because you think like, oh, it's Daytona, it's Talladega. Like you said, flat, just steer, anybody can do it. No, Ross said, no, I was out of the gas every lap this whole weekend. So I prep for different races, different ways. And if I could go back and do Atlanta over again, the racing was amazing. I would put the telemetry in a little bit more. I'm going to go back and watch the race from three or four different cars with all and with the audio on the onboard on NASCAR.com's feed. And I'm going to listen to all the audio and I want to hear how much they're out of the gas. I'm going to look at the SMT data. Like I got to understand what they're doing because I believe they are work. We see them working the wheel, but I think they're working the pedals way more than we think. I think mm -hmm. they are in and out of the gas a lot. And I think we have this really magical spot where it's a little bit of everything. It has enough drafting characteristics that some of the smaller teams aren't behind on technology and speed where they are all included in the race, which makes for good racing. The good driving cars still have an advantage. Bad driving cars still don't. Like it all matters still. And out the window, you know, we used to describe Bristol as kind of jet fighters in a soup bowl. Well, now we have like, I guess, rocket ships in a platter, right? Because it's like the track is three times bigger than Bristol and they're going... Let's check my math here, 50-ish miles an hour faster. I watched for nearly 300 miles, and I'm not sure my mind has quite figured out just how fast it looks. Like, it's unbelievable. And I think some of it is because my whole life, when I look out the window on a mile-and-a-half racetrack, there's a cadence. There's an acceleration. There's a deceleration. There's an acceleration. There's a deceleration. You know how Daytona and Talladega is only like, what, 0.16 miles bigger, but it looks like it's a mile bigger. Maybe I'm the only one that thinks that. But like when I go to the, the roof at Talladega, I'm like, there's no way. Someone remeasure this place. It looks <laughs> like it's four miles versus Daytona. Well, Atlanta is a mile smaller. It looks like it's the smallest thing you've ever seen in the world with them running wide open. And I want, I said on the broadcast, and I'm going to say it again, a lot of mix goes into this. Marcus with his racetrack, the asphalt, the tire, the engine. But in the end, it's the driver's. Because if the drivers wanted to go around there and take it easy and run single file and pick them off one at a time, then none of this would work. But they don't. They are the, as aggressive. It's nuts. It was crazy. And we could talk about the weather, but it was crazy in stage one. It was crazy. It is, in my opinion, the number one ticket in NASCAR. It used to be Bristol. If I had a fan who had never seen NASCAR, and they said, hey, man, where should I go? I'm going to be honest. I'm going to say, hey, man, listen, says it's Atlanta. It's really not. It's like 30 minutes south of Atlanta. There's really nothing around the racetrack down there. 
find yourself a great place to stay in Atlanta or a cool small town somewhere. I do think that's an issue long-term for this racetrack. And I know there's conversation about entertainment district. It has to have it because what happens on racetrack could be the number one ticket, or in my opinion, is now the number one ticket in NASCAR. But the weekend experience is going to be a hard sell for you and I to bring our wives, Nate. Right. And, and I say that because that's the new sports entertainment. Con- like This isn't a NASCAR thing. We go to a football game. Unless you love Green Bay, you're not going to Wisconsin. Like, you're just not. I'm sorry. You're going to go to Vegas. So I know Marcus knows this, and I'm, I'm half talking to the county and the town and Atlanta. Like, you have something magical. You got to give the fans another reason to go down to Hampton, Georgia. And, and it doesn't have to be the biggest over-the-top thing, but give me something, man. Some nice hotels, a couple nice restaurants. I don't care if it's a nice campground. Whatever the fans want, we need to give them something. Look at Pocono. It's in the middle of nowhere, but I believe it's a great camping thing with what they've done with infrastructure at the racetrack. We got we to start giving the fans a reason to be there in the heat of the summer because the racetrack reason is there. It is unbelievable. Yeah, it's a bold statement to say that's number one ticket in NASCAR. But I mean, I know. I can't believe I'm saying it. Well, I mean, but watch the end of stage one. You said that was before the threat of weather and, you know, the moves that Kyle Larson was making on Ryan Blaney and Blaney trying to defend. So we don't need another. We don't need another. Like some is good. More is not better. Look at what we have. Go to the Daytona 500, see the flyover. It matches the Super Bowl. Go to Chicago, stay in a hotel, walk to a street course. Go to Nashville, stay on Broadway, go to a track a little bit outside of Nashville. Same thing, a little bit of a ride. I'm not going to hide it from the fans. It's a 40-minute ride. Racing, unbelievable. And you're in probably the entertainment mecca of the East Coast now in Nashville. Atlanta, what happened on the racetrack is the most eye-popping thing in the world. Like, my point is, I can go week in and week out and tell a fan why they should go there. What, What Ben Kennedy, Steve Phelps, Jim France... What they're doing with the schedule, I think, is amazing, which is everyone isn't going to like everything, which is perfect because that means everyone is going to like something. You can't all like the same restaurants. And what we have now is a magical – you want – listen, you want a great weekend with your wife and you love wine and you want to be dined, go to Sonoma. Stay in Napa. Like, I can defend every race market we're in and why you should go there. And I just think that is like this, like even New Hampshire, we could pick on this race coming up in New Hampshire because it had two and it's down to one. New England is gorgeous in the summer. Like my point is there, I could literally go through the, the list and I could give you a handicap of the race, but I could also write a little one paragraph on that has nothing to do with the race. That's the coffee table book we're going to make, Nate, is I'm going to make my <laughs> social coffee table book with my beer joint, my restaurant and my either fine dining or ice cream joint at every racetrack because everybody talks about the races. I want to tell everybody what they do away from the races um, because in the end, if you're going to travel in, you have to have a full weekend of entertainment and, and they all kind of have it. Sounds like a bestseller. And uh, as a native New Englander, I know you have no trouble extolling the virtues of New Hampshire Motor Speedway. So give us the uh, preview here to wrap up. What do we see here? Seven races to go in the regular season, New Hampshire this weekend. Uh, not just this weekend, Stevie, but I know NASCAR is doing a test right after New Hampshire as well to look at uh, short track things for the future. So a lot. Oh, so, yeah, there's development this week about some arrow pieces. There'll be a test after the race to, to improve the short track program. Any race fan that thinks that NASCAR is OK with it, the competitors, we all know it has to improve. I think we'll always say that about something when we get short track better. Something else will have to get better. And we should all be thankful for that. I think safety and competition are always going to be in development for the rest of our lives. That's NASCAR. Don't sleep on New Hampshire. The virtues will be the complaints. Drivers will tell you it's tough to pass. Great. Make it hard. We just saw a race where everybody had a chance to keep up. We won't this week. Some people are going to stink. Some people will be multiple laps down. Some people will be screaming at their crew chiefs. Lean into it. Lean into the challenge of the one-mile paperclip. It's, it's Martinsville's big brother. It's bumpy on corner entry into three. The lanes are flat. You drive down in there and it's like you're turning through a mall parking lot. You don't know which line you're supposed to be looking at. You can run it at the bottom. You can diamond it. You can do all of these things. It's going to be super hard to overtake and lean into it. Two tires, no tires, gas only, a surprise winner. The playoffs are absolutely nuts from Daniel Suarez down to Chase Elliott. And that's only two guys that are in and about seven guys that are out. I don't like to use the word surprise winner because I think that it kind, it's kind of slap in the face because I think anyone in this field currently, or at least the top 30-ish, could win. They're very talented. But I think when I say surprise, it's going to be – I don't think it's going to be as easy to handicap. How about that? I'll go to my Dirty Modo podcast. 
it's going to be hard to pick who's going to win this one because, you know, we've seen Eric Amarola on somewhat off year win there. We saw Christopher Bell and Toyota dominate there. I mean, I'll go say it. If Daniel Suarez, if Travis Mack brings one of his better cars and gets it to drive right and calls the perfect race and you get Daniel Suarez the lead, I think he wins the race. Like that's what makes New Hampshire, New Hampshire, right? And I could say that about Bubba Wallace. I could say that about a lot of people. It's its own little flair, but it is going to be, you know how New Hampshire is. It always brings a moment. It's like a couple hundred laps and you're like, well, I think I know what's going on. And then it's like, oh my, whoa, what just happened? Right. And, <laughs> and I, I think we're going to see that again this weekend. All right. Well, we'll look forward to it. Hopefully we have a lot to talk about coming out of New Hampshire. I didn't know if we'd have a lot to talk about after a rain shortened race at Atlanta, but we certainly did. I should never doubt you. Great insight. Great perspective as always. Thanks for being here, Stevie. Appreciate it. Nate, if I could only get paid by the word, I could probably <laughs> just, I could just retire. Nate, I appreciate you having me on. Listen, uh, it's been a great year. We're only three in. Like I can't believe it. Nashville, Chicago, and Atlanta. We've had three amazing races in a row, seven weeks to the playoffs. So I'm ready. Our thanks again to Steve Letarte for joining us on the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Thanks to Motorsports Manager Emily Conboy for setting up this episode and to Zach Catanzaretti, who is editing the Motorsports and NBC YouTube channel version of the NASCAR and NBC podcast. You can catch the full episode there on the Motorsports and NBC YouTube channel. And you can always check out more NASCAR America Motormouths content, as well as highlights from across the racing spectrum, NASCAR, IMSA, IndyCar, all on the Motorsports on NBC YouTube channel. The NASCAR Cup and Xfinity Series will be at New Hampshire Motor Speedway this weekend. The Cup Series is Sunday with coverage starting at 2 p.m. Eastern on the USA Network. Dustin Long will be on the scene for NBC Sports Digital. You can visit NBCSports.com NASCAR for all the details and schedules for how to watch the Cup and Xfinity Series at New Hampshire as well as news, columns, and analysis. If you have any NASCAR and NBC podcast feedback, you can send it to me on Twitter, at Nate Ryan is my handle. Thanks again for listening to the NASCAR and NBC podcast. Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the greatest, but let me play devil's advocate here. Let's see. So, no, that's a good thing. Uh, (laughs) That's definitely not a problem. Uh, Reese's, you did it. You stumped this charming devil. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh, yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.